Welcome to The Coaching Podcast with your hosts, Emma Doyle and Simon Blair, coach for success in sport and business. Hello and welcome to The Coaching Podcast. I'm Emma Doyle here with Cliff Mallett uh, at the University of Queensland. We've just had a, a really interesting morning talking about all, all things explicit and explicit coaching, implicit and explicit, I should say. Um, we'll jump straight into it, Cliff. Uh, the first question is anchovies on a pizza. You either love it or you generally dislike it. <laughs> What's your take? Uh, I don't necessarily love it, but I like it more than I don't like it. Oh, okay. Can you share with us a coaching moment that went well and what might be some of the lessons for our listeners? Yeah, I think the big one for me has been um, my coaching of the Australian men's 4x4 uh, track relay team in 2004 in Athens. Um, I've always been a person based who likes to ask questions and to get buy-in from the athletes. And going from the semi-final to the final, um, there was a couple of questions. Who to pick in the team? Because the team underperformed in the semi-final relative to what we thought they could do. Um, so do you keep the same four runners or do you change that? And the second question is if you do keep the same order, sorry, if you do keep the same team, do you uh, keep the same order? So there were two decisions. So the first decision for me was that's the coach's decision. This is the team. And I decided to keep the same four because the circumstances uh, would mean I think that the, the runner who didn't perform in the semi the circumstances would have been different that they would have but the second question uh, and decision was uh, do we keep the same running order as a consequence and for me that wasn't my decision so for me it was really important I wasn't out there running you know the athletes had to make that decision as a group so we discussed what the pros and cons were to keep uh, two options, same running order, or to change the second and fourth leg. And um, then I said to the runners, well, um, I'm going to go out of the room. You've got 15 minutes to make a decision, no regrets. Um, you make the decision what the running order will be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I came back and they'd made their decision. And I felt that as a consequence, we got four runners committed to a running order as opposed to having two out of the four. Mm-hmm. And uh, the pleasing thing was that they... Um, they performed optimally in the final. They ran the time they were expected to run, mm-hmm. uh, which is not common at the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Very few people perform at the level uh, they're performing prior to. Most people underachieve. Yep. So, and they, they went on to win a silver medal. But even more important than the silver medal was actually that they ran what they were capable of running. Mm-hmm. So for me, we were able to extract out of them the best mm-hmm. under you know, pretty stressful conditions. So so for me, the lesson is, you know, we talk about giving people opportunities to have some say, have some choice in things, uh, and therefore autonomy. Uh, and if they have some autonomy, they're more likely to deeply engage in something. So the lesson is, you know, coaching is not about being laissez-faire and let athletes make all the decisions. So I think the, the art comes from on what things can they have some say in? And what are some things that are really important for them to have some say in? And let them make those decisions because they've got to live and die by it, not you. Yeah, yeah. Accountability too, isn't it? That's that's awesome. Um, what about the worst coaching moment, um, one that didn't go so well? Is there one that, that comes to mind? Yeah. Well, it's a, this is a bit mixed, but um, I had an athlete called Steve Rimacombe who was um, uh, running really, really well. Um, going into the 1996 Olympics, uh, he was, was in probably the best shape of his life going in and uh, comes to the semi-finals uh, he comes fifth in his semi-final uh, but if you put the two semi-finals together um, on times he actually came seventh 
But because that year they decided to change the rules, rather than being first three and next fastest two, they said top four. He missed out on the final, which was uh, the famous race with Michael Johnson. Uh, he missed the final by three hundredths of a second. Oh, wow. You know, so in athletics terms, that's not very far. So I'm thinking as a coach, what do I say? What do I, how would I ever understand what an athlete's feeling? Mm-hmm. Well, the reality is the, the athlete has to go through the media first, right? That, and there's the trauma of that mm-hmm. because they're inside their own heads. Um, then you've got the team manager who may or may not be trained in, in trauma <laughs> counselling. Mm-hmm. And then eventually they come to you, you know, and, and the whole time you think, well, what do I say here? What, what do, how do I deal with this? You know, three hundredths of a second, this is, yeah, the guy shattered. Mm-hmm. And the lesson I learned was that um, you don't have to say anything. We just walked around the track for a few laps until he was ready to say something. Yeah. And the lesson I think I learned out of it was uh, less is more. You know, you don't have to say anything. Just being in proximity and being there to socially support and emotionally support somebody is all you need. They just need to know that you're in their corner. So for me, that was a, a really, really important lesson that um, we, we try to find words and uh, cliches that are actually going to uh, help, but they're not listening. <laughs> right? So you've got to let them talk when they're ready to talk. Fantastic. Uh, the next question is a sliding doors question. Yeah, it's not a, it's, it's, it's a, not a door itself. I mean, I, the first sliding door was, you know, my whole career was predicated on uh, running into an athlete um, who made me look good. <laughs> you know, so if you don't, you know, most learning as a coach takes place because of the people you work with. Mm-hmm. Like they stimulate your learning. So I had a, a young kid in year 11 at my school who was um, had some ability um, and then within 12 months, he was national champion, wow. you know, and I, I look back on it, I think, well, what did I do? Well, actually, I, I kept him in the sport and I kept things quite basic in just terms of teaching him how to run mm-hmm. um, and getting flexible. So uh, the sliding door moment for me in my whole career uh, initially was just if you're being in the right place at the right time, um, sometimes opportunities present themselves, but then it's about what you do with that opportunity. Mm-hmm. So my whole career was based on, he went on to win a, a silver medal at the World Indoors and uh, World Outdoor finalist, um, Commonwealth Games finalist, so he had a, a very good career. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a consequence of that, that allowed me then to, uh, people thought I knew what I was doing, I'm not sure that I did, um, but, they, but other athletes started to then come and work with me, mm-hmm. which allowed me more opportunities, so more sliding doors. Yeah. But there's a couple of other things I wouldn't mind saying. One is that um, I used to be a very detailed uh, planner. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything was sort of um, quite statistical and, and detailed in terms of what the, the athlete was going to do. And it took me a while to really come to grips with. It's not the, the detail and the program per se. There's good thinking that goes in behind that. But over time, it's not the program. It's not the training program. It's actually the climate you create. Mm-hmm. You know, and you, and you move away from worrying about quantity to actually the quality. So it's how do I get athletes to compete with each other in a training session is far more important than actually necessarily how many reps and sets. Mm-hmm. So for me, that was a, a real pivotal moment in my growth as a coach was actually uh, moving away from focusing on quantity to quality. Um, in one to a maximum of three words, what okay. do you think makes a great coach? Excellent question. Um, I'm going to give three. I'm going to call them the three C's. Everybody has three P's, three C's, three <laughs> E's, whatever. But the first one is care. I think uh, when you show you care both for yourself and you care for others, uh, people will work with you. 
and um, it brings in a whole range of things about empathy, etc. But uh, showing you care, people become very loyal to you. You know, so treating people as people, I think, is really, really important, and and understanding the person behind uh, the performer mm-hmm. is really important. The second one is challenging. I think you've got to challenge yourself, uh, but also you've got to challenge others, and those two have got to work nicely together because the more you challenge, the more you've got to care, yep. right, and support people. And the third C, I think, is curious. You know, and that brings in notions of you've got to be passionate about what you do and curious to want to be a, a, a lifelong learner and to keep trying to push the envelope and try to find answers to questions, the big questions, because there's, uh, there's no, uh, they're wicked problems, uh, there's no black or white answers, but um, you just get some answers are more correct um, and less correct. Um, but I think being curious and trying to develop that curiosity uh, for learning in the, in the athletes that you coach is important as well. I love that line. You don't have to agree with me. You just have to be curious. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. Oh, great. The three C's. Thank you. And finally, we ask you to ask us a question. Two questions. One is, uh, why do you do what you do? So that's a basic question around motivation. And it's really trying to explore uh, more deeply the subconscious drives that you have, that why is coaching so important to you? And, and, and why do you work so hard? And why do you spend time with other people's children and probably not your own kids? Mm-hmm. You know? A lot of time often. Mm. Yeah, and, and the other question is um, trying to find out who's the person behind the athlete and who's the person behind the coach. So it comes to identity. And um, who are you and, and what's really important to you, I think really is central to understanding yourself and others. Mm-hmm. Absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Emma. And post this interview, I had the fortunate experience of talking further with Cliff and he was discussing his research from the Serial Winning Coaches Project that was too good not to share. So uh, from our own research, particularly with the Serial Winning Coaches Project, which examined um, uh, 14 of the world's most successful coaches in multiple contexts, um, there were three metaphors that sort of reinforced our understanding about what makes coaches great. And the first one is coaches are architects. So you're an architect because you design the learning environment. And what, how do you create that psychological safety but a challenging environment in the same, same breath um, is really important. The second metaphor is that uh, coaches uh, themselves should be seen as performers. You know? And that brings into these notions about leadership. What is leadership? And how do you engender followership? But coach as performer, we spend a lot of time on athletes as performers, but actually the coach and how they perform impacts the athlete's performance. Mm -hmm. So we need to shift some of the discourse towards understanding how do we help coaches become better performers, particularly in Olympic Games, Davis Cup, um, uh, Wimbledon sort of competitions. And the third third metaphor we use is uh, coach as learner. Mm -hmm. You know, the great coaches are, are learning, um, all the time and continue to learn and they don't stop learning because they're curious mm-hmm. and they want to know more than everybody else knows so that they can actually be the best coach they can be to help the athletes that they work with. Mm, I think that's why they give it out a lot of information because they're always yeah. they're always getting the, the latest so I'm okay to give you what I already know because I'm yeah. already... And it's a competitive edge. Yeah. So what's, what provides my competitive edge is that I am curious, I want to be a learner mm. and what's actually out there. Mm. But they're not... They're, they're, as consumers of the research and what's out there, is actually, they're actually quite critical of it too. Mm-hmm. They just don't take what's trendy 
they actually interrogate it yeah. and actually think about how they might play with that idea or that information within yeah. their own context. Yeah, yeah, cool. And could you just share um, the chapel, the story about the um, the way they grew up? Yeah, no, Greg Chappell tells a story about how he, Ian and Trevor grew up on an orchard farm um, outside of Adelaide and just uh, one played for Australia, one played for New Zealand, one played for England and every afternoon they competed with each other. But their dad had an orchard farm and to protect the orchards from them playing backyard cricket, he put up these these gates to like like a fence to as a barrier to protect the orchards. So they learned implicitly... Uh, where to place a ball on the basis of where those fences were. Yeah. Um, so they were learning without knowing that they were learning. Yeah. And that that constitutes deeper opportunities for learning. Yeah. So um, yeah, no. Competitive rival. Oh, brotherly well, rivalry. Well, the, the, the irony yeah. was uh, Trevor played for New Zealand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so very famous incident. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Thank you. Well, can you believe that interview with Cliff Mallet? I mean, Mitch Hewitt, you actually first told me about Cliff many, many years ago. But before we even get to his interview, I am just paying you some incredible gratitude. I'm going to start with my gratitude for Mitchell Hewitt. I write about you. I talk about you. I reference you. You have impacted my career so much. You're even going to make the book, What Makes a Great Coach, by the way. And I just want to say that I'm so grateful you found the time all the way from, of course, Victoria, Australia, Melbourne, and make some time to just to chat, chat coaching with you. I'm so, so grateful for everything you've done. And we're going to get into a deeper dive in that in a minute. But um, how are you? I'll just start with how are you? Are you good? Hi. I'm 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 great, um, and 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 look the obviously the, the we've known each other for a long time. The feeling is absolutely mutual, and I I think the beauty of the space that we work in, which is education, is that we we always learn from each other. So your your very kind words uh, are certainly um, reciprocated back to you as much as you, you may think that you may have learned from me which in my incoherent ramblings of what I go on with um, I've certainly learned just as much um, from you so it's a uh, so it's it's always a good conversation with you so I'm, I'm absolutely wrapped to be invited on um, on this uh, on on this podcast and this uh, and this discussion it, it, it's uh, it's great. Fantastic. Well, listen, Mitch, because you introduced me to Cliff, how do you, how did you know Cliff? Like, how did you first meet him or when when did that happen? Probably goes back, um, and I'll make a very long story short, um, M, probably nine years ago, uh, we started a, a tertiary program at Tennis Australia. And essentially what I wanted to do is con- get into contact with tertiary institutions to look at their pre-service teachers, whether they were primary or secondary, human movement, exercise science, and tap into a channel, uh, a delivery channel that might assist tennis coaches. Because as you well know, the tennis coaches are always crying out for assistant tennis coaches. Um, so so kind of that's, that, that's where I met Cliff. I had met him previous to that at a couple of conferences uh, he was a very revered individual, um, lots of knowledge, but such a lovely, approachable person, a lovely person, uh, very humanistic, very relational. Those two words I'm sure we'll use in this discussion as we go along. 
relational and humanistic. He really practiced what he preached uh, with his coaching and, and the way he interacted with people. Um, I was very fortunate that he embraced um, my ideas, embraced um, our conversations, uh, and since then he has become a a mentor of mine. You know, I, I, I may speak to Cliff, you know, once a month when, when he can uh, put up with my voice and put up with my ridiculous questions that I ask him. Uh, so that's that's kind of the genesis of, of, of kind of where it all started with Cliff Mallet. Yeah. And speaking of generous with his time, I mean, uh, when I finally had the opportunity, I was working up in Queensland to to interview him for the podcast. Of course, he said, well, why don't you come to the university, sit out, sit on in on the first year coaching students lecture with me where we're talking about, uh, you know, uh, what they're going to study. And it was fantastic. So I sat through this lecture, reminded me of first year uni. And then, of course, then I got to interview him and, and have coffee and pick his brain. And, and it was wonderful. So so I love that. So his best coaching moment, love to just chat about this concept of ownership over the decision-making process and yeah. giving, imagine you got 15 minutes. I mean, this isn't just a race. I mean, we're talking about the Olympics, right? But actually letting them choose and knowing when they, you know, when they can choose, make those decisions. Decision-making, let's, let's go, let's start with that topic because you've impacted my right. way that I teach decision-making. Yeah. Well, yeah. Look, I, it, it, it was a remarkable story, and 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 I it was a stroke of genius from UM to to have him on the show because there's no one better to talk about uh, this notion of decision making, and and you use some really powerful words there, which I really like. Yeah, you know, empowerment, agency, and choice, and it's really interesting because he was dealing at a very elite level at a very high anxiety um, time and he was able to release uh, as a coach, made a decision to release some power and influence to his athletes and I thought it was a remarkable story, and I, I had heard that before in bits and pieces. It was very, it was very risky. I, I think a lot of coaches would have thought, "Oh wow, that you know, you that that shouldn't have happened." You, you know, the coaches, you know, you open the, you know, the brain of the individual and you tip all the information in, and that's what they do. But it was a stroke of genius, and I and I and I think. Cliff uh, really embraced the notion of this athlete-centred and we can use the word synonymously with player-centred where, and I'm being facetious and sarcastic here, Emma, as you know, uh, that is part of my personality, um, <laughs> but heaven forbid, heaven forbid we would, we would ever ask uh, our players, our children, our athletes about what they think. Um, we, we are always underestimating their ability to, to, to become part of this, this culture of care. Um, and this culture of care includes this relational um, element. Um, so through that decision-making, um, the athletes, I mean, I mean would, um, Cliff obviously moved on and I'm, I'm sure they were 
kicking and screaming that he moved on and, you know, Cliff, can you stay? And because you brought this new dynamic to, to, to what we're used to. So I thought it was a, it was a terrific story. Cliff really embraced this, this change of landscape for coaches. And the, and the landscape has changed, as you know, and you, you've been involved in lots of initiatives with this, where we, we see the coach um, becoming uh, and the player becoming part of uh, a mutual decision-making process. And if we don't ask the players, the students, the individuals what they think, it becomes very idiosyncratic. And what I'm what I mean by that is, you know, I make the decision based on what Emma Doyle wants. Now, I actually haven't asked what Emma Doyle wants, uh, and that, and and I think that's an oversight from coaches. So certainly, the landscape's changed. It's changed to coach as educator rather than coach as an autocratic individual that just makes all the decisions for for the athletes. Now, there's and, and you just tell me when to stop. Um, Keep going. Keep going. Just, I will. You just say, Mitch, I'll just shut that. up. And... <laughs> Again, we, we, you know, we look at now athletes in their personal lives. Um, we want them to be good problem solvers. We want them to be able to make decisions. If from a very young age they are they're used to being told what to do all the time, how is that going to help them as individuals and citizens and good people. So we have two things operating here, don't we? We, we, we have the sports side stuff that's occurring, uh, but then we also have this, this notion of the, this personal side occurring as well, which I think is really important. But to embrace this notion of a change of landscape, I'm not saying that it's carte blanche, that we just throw the decisions open to the athletes, certainly all the players and the students whoever you're dealing with, um, it's certainly a, it's a co-relationship that's occurring. There's good conversations. There's lots of trust. There's lots of what we would refer to as debate of ideas. Um, so let's debate the ideas. Let's talk about them. Um, let, let's, let's put question marks um, beside them rather than M, probably the way that we used to look at things was exclamation marks this is what you're going to do this is when you're going to do it and this is how you're going to do it not sure if that assists in their sporting aspirations uh, but also um, it's a very humanistic way of looking at things um, not to repeat myself but in their own personal lives as well i think what you summarize so beautifully is when he refers to it as the art the art on what things that they can have a say in and coaching the art and the science is is the beautiful balance because the science is moving at such a rapid rate as well we need to keep abreast of what the latest trends are and what the tools that we have at our fingertips to use without losing that humanistic side which of course in on the flip side of the worst coaching moment he talks about less is more he mm. talks about and i think i'm pretty sure you said to me once you said, Emma, remember the power of the pause. The <laughs> power of the pause. I think I was going on and on and on and you just went, sometimes you have to give the space 
often after we go over something, uh, we have to give the space for the learning to occur or, or the feedback loop to to actually, you know, I, I certainly know as well as a young coach, which I used to, someone to make an unforced error, I'd jump straight in the space. I've got the answer for you. I've, I can fix that. Whereas it yeah. might not even be a common a common error. I know it's a, a big, big thing of yours as well. Letting somebody talk when they're ready to talk. Again, the art, the art of coaching. Um, I, I love that three one hundredths of a second. <laughs> crazy, crazy stuff. What are your thoughts as coaches develop, developing coaches, right? We know direct versus indirect. Maybe, you know, that was a get total game changer. I was going to, I had that later on my list, but it's coming up now for me <laughs> to talk to you about. I mean, you you changed the landscape in my mind and help me simplify because it's not a sim- simplistic process to, to understand your language of when you're being direct versus indirect. And what's your advice, Mitch, on, on that? How did you simplify the language when, you know, especially for Tennis Australia to make it so much easier for us to understand? And how do we help coaches understand that continuum or develop the continuum of the skills? I think yeah. I've got four questions there. You can handle that. Crikey, they are—they're tough. You're giving me some crikey. Tough ones here, That's brilliant, crikey. <laughs> you like that? That's nine thirty. You know, I've been up since five, and you—wow, you, you're really testing my. Um, <laughs> and you know, these—I'm I'm getting older these days, and I—I'm I'm becoming more of a blunt instrument, uh, as I realise. Um, as my daughter, um, as a side note, just uh, is just flying past me in her ability to learn Japanese because she goes to a Japanese school and I can I can see the decision making um, and and in in essence the implicit learning that's occurring when, when we learn to you know to walk and we learn um, the language um, but to get back on to your point you use a really good word there um, and that's the continuum. We need to to have the capacity of coaches to one understand or to know uh, the player. That, that, that's really important. So so know who you're dealing with because they're not all the same, and some will prefer to navigate down an avenue of indirect. So lots of questions. Give me the opportunity to solve it, coach or teacher or whoever it is, significant other. And yet there'll be some um, that just want to be told. And I don't think that's um, in the words of Judith Rink for, for our listeners, if, um, if, if they wish to, to, to look up um, uh, an academic who, who I certainly did lots of um, reading about was, you know, that we need to treat each athlete quite differently or player or individual because some like to be told. Her great saying was, it's not if but when. And um, we do lots of direct coaching. We do lots of direct um, conversation and communication. So, for example, when we're setting up um, our our coaching environment, we're very direct. Um, so, Emmy, this is the game. Um, here are the the spot markers. Here are the rules of the game, and then we play the game. So that's actually quite direct, very direct in actual fact. So direct probably was misinterpreted, uh, I imagine, and there is lots of room for it. And then once the game starts, 
perhaps we then um, move toward, move, as you use that word, really, you articulated that beautifully, this continuum of, okay, well, how how much can we challenge our our players, our individuals to um, to make decisions based on maybe some, and the term that's used probably most now in the literature is kind of nudging. You know, we nudge the players. Well, you know, what happens if, and et cetera, et cetera. You know, what could you have done then? Um, and then we leave them. Let them work it out because I think one of the things that we that we always think is that students are not capable, players are not capable, individuals are not capable. I look at Coco every day and I often underestimate her ability to do things. And I think that may be one thing that coaches can consider, that they are actually capable if we give them a little bit of time and space and um, repetition and opportunity to practice, I, I imagine. So the language there, um, I guess, getting back to your original question, was just to define it. Now, as you know, I'm, uh, I'm a, um, a, a big proponent of lots of different theories, but in particular, Mostert and Ashworth's spectrum of teaching styles, because it's a, it's a terrific theory, framework, that talks only about decision-making. That's it. It's all about decision-making. And there are three elements of decision-making. It, 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 there's, there's a pre-impact, there's an impact, and there's a post-impact. Now, the pre-impact, M, is what happens prior to the, you know, to the coaching session or the whatever you're doing you know, the cooking session or whatever you do. So, so you, you, you're, you're being very direct there. You're making decisions. Now, in the impact phase, that's the doing phase. We're out on the court. We're playing. There's provision there for the opening up of um, and the freeing up of decisions um, that are transferred to, to players potentially. And then obviously there's the post-impact, which is after. Um, now, depending on which coaching or teaching style you're looking at um, and what you're trying to achieve out of that, that post-impact is either going to be decided by the coach. So the coach will come in and give direct feedback. Emma, we, we needed to work on this, this, this or this. Or depending, again, on the teaching style, um, the post-impact decision-making is is transferred to the player. So I'd really encourage um, coaches that are and, and, and teachers and parents, students, players, to, to have a bit of a look. It's a, it's a really simple um, way of assessing um, where these decisions are actually made. I love that, pre-impact and posts. I've got already... Quarter page notes. I hope everybody else loving it. Loving it. Um, no, you know it's a really good point. And I and again, I just want to thank you because I didn't even know if you noticed, but even at the start of the interview, I got tongue twisted on implicit, and I meant to say explicit, but I said implicit twice. And and I know when I was a beginning coach, you know there were so many terms 
that I was getting confused on mm. what what am I actually doing and what am I meant to be doing? And, you know, when you strip it right back, when you, if you said looking at the developmental readiness, another great, I'm not sure who coined that term at, at Tennis Australia, but it's a fantastic two, two mm. words to always consider that first. And then you can go direct, indirect, float along the continuum. So, um, so again, just a, a shout out for helping me, someone who's extremely creative and always just like, so I'm always thinking and there's so many ideas, maybe some other coaches out there can relate to when you're in that coaching moment, there's so many things that you want to say and you want to do, but less is more. This, this quality over quantity that Cliff keeps reinforcing, I think is just so important. So we invite you to to explore and experiment, but know what you're doing. And a lot of your, um, you know, a lot of your practical um, uh, presentations in the past, um, in, of which I've, I've watched, um, whether it be, you know, domestically or sort of internationally, um, you're very good at this notion of we talk about the notion of nudging and prompting, nudging and prompting about well what do you think? So what do you think you can do? And then and then say okay go out and do it again, and try it again because inherently our young players they are inquisitive. They they want to. I can't tell Coco anything. I'll tell her something and she'll do the complete opposite. And I'll say, well, fine, you go and try and ride over that with your bike and see what happens. Um, so inherently they are inquisitive, I've found. A lot of your stuff um, in, in your practical um, presentations have always, um, and there may not have been a, a language label necessarily attached to it, um, of which we're talking about now, this notion of, this confusion or potential confusion of, of language and putting a language label on things because, you know, we're, we're, we've got game sense and then we've got game base and then we've got, you know, tactical games and, um, you know, teaching games for understanding and all these sorts of things. Now, depending on what country you're from, we can certainly say that game sense the game sense approach in Australia certainly uh, encourages the notion of questions. Um, one of the greatest teaching styles on Moston and Ashworth's spectrum of teaching styles is inclusion style E. And if there's one thing that that potentially listeners is inclusion style E, and I love inclusion style E because it's exactly what we're talking about. We are giving them a range of options and they choose. So red, red, green, orange, whatever ball it is, whatever type of size racket it is, what length of the court, if we use, we're using, um, you know, tennis terms, you go and choose. Because there's one thing that we can guarantee here, Em, is that students will choose things for success. They're not going to do things that are not successful. So certainly they'll go for the, the full compression ball with the full length of the court. There'll be no success. You'll turn your back and you'll walk away and suddenly they've picked out the orange ball. Oh, this doesn't look too bad. This is a little bit easier. And that's choice empowerment and relational um, 
as we see it as good coaching, I, I think, these days. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of my favourite activities, just a bucket of red balls on the service line, bucket of orange three-quarter, green on the baseline, yellow behind the baseline. Yeah, let's play. And then based yep. on the, not on the last shot, but on the process of the point, you, you're you absolutely right. Um, I just had an insight. I, one of the things I think that I now do well as a, as a coach is making practical what the research suggests. Mm. So I, for example, you know, I, off the back of learning under you, I created the CPR philosophy. Every activity has got to be C stands for cognitive, P stands for projection and perception skills, and mm. R stands for really, really, really fun. And one yeah. coach said to me, that doesn't start with R. Fun doesn't start with R. Anyway, he didn't quite get it. But, <laughs> um, but you know, CPR is 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 based, though, on your yeah. influence of me and talk us through even that's how I might, would make it practical and, and help people remember how to bring that to life within your coaching and learning environment. But there's research behind that, isn't there, Mitch, around can you talk about the affective domain? It, it, absolutely. Research will tell us that, you know, a game-based approach where, um, you know, the player, the student, the individual comes to you and says, rather than, um, M, are we going to play a game today, the discourse changes to what game are we going to play today? And it's all about games for them. And we we, we have to remember because we get stuck in this all-star culture, I think, and we we often see that that our players are often replicating um, some of the coaching practices that um, that are beyond. And and again, a good term you used before um, and articulated well was this notion of developmental readiness that that they are copying um, elements of elite practice and they're fixated parents included, on this all-star culture. Um, now, th- there is no effective um, activation, I don't think, in that. Um, what we do know with effective and research will tell us is that students, players, um, individuals love to play games. Go figure. <laughs> Who would ever figure? They want to play games. They want to play um, adults want to play, youth want to play. So we do know that. On the flip side, though, we, we also do know, um, research will tell us that that if I um, if I just want to focus, M, on your um, technical development or the other term psychomotor, um, for those out there um, that, that want a different term, and, and if we're just focusing in on a technical element, then feeding from a basket with repetition and volume of practice will improve the the technical or the physical domain, no question. So we have to balance and we have to look at, as we do, as you and I do, um, look at the different elements. Uh, And then we need to make a decision, well, what do students want to do? Now, I was, uh, I'm old enough in the tooth that I was taught from a basket and I'm not quite sure if I've got that many great memories of my coaching um, experiences aside from once I got through my hour of feeding um, and I had developed whatever I was developing in just the physical domain, 
I was then told to go down to court 12 and go play games. Well, that was the best part of the, the you know, that, that's where I learned. That's where the game of tennis really came to life for me, the, the notion of variation, the notion of, um, you know, the ball doesn't always land at the, in the same spot at the same height, at the same spin and the same speed. Um, so the question for coaches is, do we know our game and are we coaching our game um, to represent our game, uh, I guess? But there has to be a high level of play. Now, I'm going to throw a couple of terms to you now, uh, which you'll be familiar with. Is one, is one is deliberate play and one is deliberate practice. And in the formative years, so we're, we're, we're possibly looking, but again, we, we're using this as a, um, these, these age groups as age-related, not dependent. Uh, deliberate play is we allow our players, students, um, individuals to go out and play for joy um, and for fun, for enjoyment. As things get a little, as they get a little bit older, we, we shift into potentially this notion of deliberate practice. Deliberate practice means that we start to develop the the technical elements, um, the tone of the the coaching session or the teaching session becomes a little bit more serious. Now I suspect, and again, this is just a personal opinion. I suspect that some of this switch from deliberate play to deliberate practice occurs at a certain age, and I think it's around about 12, that, okay, you're 12 years old now. I think you're ready for some serious stuff now. And the poor child, individual, thinks, hang on a second, what what, what just happened? I was having the time of my life here. I've Deliberate play, I was engaging with the coach, everything was going well, and now suddenly it's all serious. And with that becomes a, a reduction in the, the notion of the decision-making part. Deliberate play, lots of decisions. You go out and make your decisions. You go create your games. You go choose your equipment. You go choose your scoring systems. And that keeps them, keeps them engaged, as we know. A hundred percent. I... Uh... I love it. And I think it's also one of the reasons we get burnout and dropout and, and all the rest of it. Everything you're saying also relates to what Cliff said about most learning takes place with those you work with. So it's a collaborative, you know, the, the through line so far discussion is the importance of that your students can teach you so much. Uh, and I know you and I were learning facilitators together for many years. And I would love it when the, the child would say, well, why is the cone here? you know, in, a, in an activity because they were tripping on it or because it was it didn't make any sense to them. And I love that. And I, I think as coaches sometimes, you know, it's important that we do park our ego at the door and allow that uh, opportunity for the kids to to teach us things that, uh, you know, that we, that we might not necessarily know. He's sliding doors, you know, being at the right place at the right time so that you know what to do with that opportunity with these his sliding doors moment. And I think even taking this information and acting on it, acting on one little bit of advice that, you know, Mitch has already given or go up and look up some of the, some of the research to support some of your ideas is, is so important. And, and let's, let's go to the three C's. Let's go to the three C's, care, challenge, and 
curious. Of course, curious right now is like my favourite all-time word and I've never been yeah. more curious and I think I was stifled as a junior. It was squashed out of me. It was more like where's the bathroom? Is this going to be on the test? But now it's never been more present in my life. And I know that you are a lifelong learner and super, super curious. So I'm going to throw this question at you. What are you deeply curious about right now? That's a tough one. I'm curious about lots of things. I know. Um, (laughs) I know. Hang on. Let me reframe. What specifically are you curious about right now? Just pick one of your top 10. I'm very curious um, in relation to um, the the impact, I guess, of this affective domain for for our players, students, but also coaches. Um, I'm very curious because I, I I think they're at a um, we're at a critical juncture um, in terms of where we are with and, and and I haven't used this word yet, and I'm going to use it now. Pedagogy, I haven't used it. <laughs> Um, of which we, you know, we, there's psychology and for some reason pedagogy is a word that just, oh, don't use that, it's too confusing, whatever it is. But that's that's what we deal with, the, the, the art of, of, of teaching and coaching children. The other term is andragogy, which is teaching adults. Um, so I'm very curious to, to, to see where this goes. And, and and how we can how we can improve how we can encourage and how we can influence our coaches our teachers even our students our parents to embrace um, this notion of a player centered approach I'm very curious about that where it's going to go now hopefully and and I and I'm being optimistic here that we, we continue to to, to go down this avenue, M, of a more player-centred approach. And I, 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 I'm I curious to know whether coaches are going to be terrified or threatened in terms of, well, hang on a second, does that mean I'm giving all the decisions back to the players? Not at all. And this comes back to redefining and interpreting what you and I are talking about right now. And that gets down to education. It gets down to professional development. It gets down to reading because in actual fact, as you know, um, and, and you've had more experience than most, that um, if we enact a releasing of some of these decisions to our players, it becomes a far more challenging um, coaching environment for the, for the coach. They have to be far more organised. Otherwise, they just default to the basket, direct feeding, et cetera, et cetera. So that's my one curiosity. I, I see that there is a, a tide that is changing. If we can build it into our coaching courses a little bit more, uh, provide examples um, and, and get our, um, our next generation of coaches to be comfortable with the language. Um, but to, as, as you articulated before, bring it together, the term being praxis, bringing the theory and the practical together. So here's the theory. Let's go and bring the theory to life. And I, I think that's really important. So that's a real curiosity for me. That's why we were the dream team as letting facilitators. <laughs> Correct. 
There's no doubt about that. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding, all all the other tennis training facilitators out there, but I always just enjoy the uh, the theory side that you know it's always good to have dorky what I call dorky friends I'm not calling you a dork right. of course I've been called but worse. the people that love the research <laughs> and then they would bring the information so I could make it practical and it's it's a beautiful combination um, just could you just go back though and could you just define affective domain for our listeners yeah of course so affective domain it really just basically looks at joy um, fun and enjoyment. That, that's all it is. And, and so if we if we look at our domains and we, we have a cognitive domain, so if we look at developing now, um, which I think has come into the discourse and the narrative or our discussions, that we want to develop um, players, athletes, individuals, school children holistically. And we want to do that through a number of domains, one being the cognitive domain. Now, this is where we kind of started our conversation, the cognitive domain about decision-making, about thinking, about thinking about thinking. Um, Then you've got the physical domain. I'm not saying that we elevate the cognitive and the decision-making above physical, but what I'm saying is let's get them all together working nicely, harmoniously together. Um, And so affective just sits in as the the domain where there's joy fun enjoyment now a, a, enough of your listeners um would have would have read that you know the perception of competence and confidence and fun enjoyment joy trust all these elements play an enormous role in why they play sport so we have to have or activate this affective domain and in terms of activating this affective domain, we have we, we have to play games, and we have to allow um, or permit them to have a voice, to have some agency, to give them some empowerment, um, and they feel then that they're part of the learning process. I'm kind of like the the assistant coach here. I've I've got something to say. Em, go and create a game. Mitch, go and create a game. We'll, we'll play your game. Terrific. So that's the, the affective is is a big one. And, and we do know it's been researched enough to suggest that our players, students and individuals and coaches, for that matter, and teachers, their, their desire to, to implement this type of pedagogy is very important. In a nutshell, that one. Yeah. In a, thank you. In a nutshell, so it's okay for me to go and play jail tomorrow. Sorry, darling. You know just kidding. You don't have to answer. You know, that. You know it, you, you've raised a really good question because um, I, I don't shy away from the games. They love to play. It, it's manipulating these games that can ultimately uh, address some of the other elements that are related to tennis, but. I'm certainly not going to shy away from a, a group of five or six-year-olds that want to play jail tennis, and I'll play it for five minutes, no problem. And they'll be jumping around and climbing the fence, and we we have to accept that that's what they want to do. So yeah, I, I, I have no uh, I have no compunction or issue about doing you know catch tennis or jail tennis. It's just how long you do it for. I'm just not quite sure we can do it now for 
30 minutes or 45 minutes in the entire lesson. <laughs> well, um, but, you know my philosophy on that. I mean, there's so many other better games out there that actually correct. relate to the sport. Uh, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, you know, like totally. If they want to play it for a couple of minutes, maybe, okay, maybe, and then uh, hopefully they've had other games in their, in their playing toolkit that they're going to make some better choices over, yeah. over time. But it, it's, it's an important one for coaches maybe just to hear that. Um, I like that advice, Mitch. So, and, and you know what, you know, just sort of manipulate your game that there's not just projection, that there's a little bit of reception to it. There's, there's not the, the, the elimination element that, that you're out. We want to make it inclusive rather than exclusive. Um, and this is, again, getting to know your players. You, you have a group of, you know, individuals that are jumping out of their skin and, you know, oh, I'm in jail and I want to get out of jail. But then you've got to be very careful um, with this personal, social and emotional element of, okay, I've been eliminated from the game, hence I don't like tennis, I'm not coming back. Yeah. And that gets us back to knowing your your individual, knowing your player. Yeah. Um, which gets back to Cliff's um, story about knowing his athletes. Mm-hmm. He, he knew the right time. He, he knew his athletes well enough to be able to give them that empowerment to make the decision. So it's a terrific story. Yeah. Again. Yeah. And he and he cares, doesn't he? So you can sense that. But all right. Well, listen, he has thrown us a curveball, Mitch. His questions for the podcast. Why do you do what you do? And who is the person behind the coach? OMG, Cliff Mallet. <laughs> Which one of those do you want to tackle first? Why, why I do what I do. It's really easy. It's it's the joy. It's the joy on the individual's face when they're able to achieve um, uh, a physical skill combined with a cognitive element, combined with the affective element, combined with an emotional attachment to what they've done. And you know what, Em, that can be as simple as and all the coaches, and again, there's no complexity at all with this uh, with this response. That we have, we've all had students that that you do an underarm throw and they can't catch in a bucket, and they don't. They do it over and over again, and then suddenly that buck, that ball lands in the bucket. Well, you know what? That has just completely made their entire weekend, their entire week. You can imagine what that's. The, the impact on their confidence and competence to then say, I'm a tennis player. I've got a bucket. I know it's a bucket, but for me it's a racket. There's some sort of barrier that's been projected and rece- projection reception, and I've caught this in this bucket. I've got my point or I've got my scoring system, and they're jumping out of their skin. That's what. That's why I do what I do, Be, for the reaction but for their long-term development was the second part to it. And because if we don't get the fundamental perceptual skills right early on, we are only contributing to this drop-off at age 13 and 16. And that's a real worry for us at the moment. We have a global movement crisis at this point. So I'll leave it there. I do what I do is all about harnessing energy and helping people see real possibilities beyond what they ever could have imagined so that they can authentically take action and 
live the most successful version of their life. I mean, that's why I do what I do. And what about, tell us something about Mitch, that the one little thing, the person behind the coach, what's really important to you? Well, well, if we're talking about present, what, what, what's really important to me at the moment is I'll be very upfront and honest about this and I'm, I'm running out of time uh, in terms of age and, and I, will, um, I will say that uh, Coco is a, a, a little bit of a, an experiment for me. We, we play lots of games. We do lots of different things. My, my challenge now um, through all this homeschooling is that she does it all in Japanese. So she goes to the Melbourne Japanese school. Her homeschooling is five days a week, all Japanese. They have two English lessons a week. And and often I am dragged into those classes. I am at the absolute bottom of grade one Japanese. Um, she speaks far better than I do. And it's remarkable the, the way the teacher delivers the information and lots of questions, lots of inquiry. I'm relearning this kind of stuff. So I would encourage... My thing at the moment is encourage people to go and learn something new. Go and put yourself back to stage one and actually see what it feels like to, to, to be, that, um, be that learner for the first time. And I think that that will make you a better, um, better coach. So I, I guess um, at, at this particular point in time and, and given you know, Melbourne and Victoria, there's lots of homeschooling. So there's lots of opportunity for me to, to be involved in these classes, of which I can be very honest with you, I'm absolutely terrified of these classes. I have, I'm the only male um, in the class when I'm asked to, to join and I make an absolute meal of the language to which my daughter turns to me often and says, Dad, you just pronounced that the, the com- completely the wrong way. Uh, the, that, that, that's the most inappropriate word you could have used. Um, I'm getting giggling and laughing from, from the other people and the other parents in the class. So that, that is my life at the moment, Em. So that, that, that's sort of me behind the, behind the scenes, I guess. That's what I, I deal with every day. I love <laughs> it. It taps back into, you know, the, the Serial Winning Coaches Project, doesn't it? The coaches architect, we've spoke about that, the environment. The coach is a performer, work on your own performance. The coach as a learner as, as number three. So, um, so listen, I'd love to wrap up this interview by interviewing you on the coaching podcast. The five common questions are coming your way. Um, so h- how about it? You up for it? Sure. All right. All right. So to wrap up the coaching podcast, I'm interviewing Mitch Hewitt now on his uh, his responses. The first question is pineapple on a pizza. You either love it or you hate it. What's your what's your take? Yeah, definitely not. Not definitely not. I I cannot have warm um, pineapple. I will eat fresh pineapple. Definitely not on a pizza. No. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, because you answered that way, you have to tell us a coaching moment that didn't go so well, and what might be some of the lessons. Yeah, it's it, this is a really good one, and this happened uh, very early in my coaching career, where I was completely oblivious um, to the personal, social, and emotional um, aspects of an individual. So. This individual was physically very capable, 
are cognitively very capable. What I failed to do is I failed to get to know the individual. And there were lots of there were lots of things happening outside the the tennis court that I did not know. And I should have spent more time and when that person walked in the gate to how was your day? And I should have probed more. Had I done that, and I eventually got to it, and I eventually got to the outcome that I wanted to learn more about the family scenario and the situation and what was happening at school. And as soon as I was able to tap into that, to ask the right questions, to develop that trust for that individual who was eight years old, a couple of questions that I hit the mark changed everything completely changed the the relationship that we had. Um, Now, this person went on to um, play until they were old enough to drive to tennis coaching, and then they went on to do a a JD course, and then they coached for us um, or in the business for, for, for six or seven years before going on and doing teaching. So that was one thing. Um, don't overlook all the domains um, and get to know your player. That was that, that was a big eye-opener for me, that one. Fantastic. Sliding doors moment in your life, you've got one or two? Yeah, I, look, I was in Japan. Um, I moved to Japan um, on a whim. I was studying um, Aikido. Uh, which is Jap- a defensive Japanese martial art here in Melbourne. I've been doing it for um, four or five years, and, and I needed a change. I was still studying at the time, and I thought, look, I need to get out and do something different. I moved to Japan. I remember waking up the first morning, and I was on this very thin futon. Now, people think, I think in Australia, futons are like this big, in Japan, they're kind of like this thin, as you would know. The sliding door was I, I had a um, a call to to go and work at the American club in Singapore. I often wonder, had I stayed in Japan, because I started to teach started to, to teach tennis and I was doing Aikido, I was really enjoying it, I was teaching English at the time. And I made the snap decision or this decision to, to kind of move to Singapore. Often wonder what might have occurred differently had I stayed in Japan um, or I got lots of rich learnings out of going to Singapore, of course. But I often reflect on that every now and then. It's often when I'm having a glass of red. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Domarigato uh, gozaimasu. Sorry, uh, do I embarrass myself? And I probably did with my pronunciation. But uh, beautiful. next question is, you know what's coming. I've asked now close to 500. I think you're 490 something. Mitch, in one to a maximum of three words, what do you think makes a great coach? Yeah, know your player. Know, know the person that's in front of you. This is not a one-size-fits-all. Don't throw a blanket over everyone. Know your player. Get to know them. And once you get to know them, that you, you've unlocked the key um, to, to what they want to do, to what they want to achieve. Fantastic. And finally, 
What question do you have for the coaching podcast? I want to know what's coming up next. I, I, I'm loving these coaching podcasts and I, 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 I'd love to know, you know, what's on the horizon um, with you and what, um, and what you're going to be doing next and what you're going to explore next because I'd love to be involved. You, you're doing some terrific work, Em, and, and, and I think it needs to be acknowledged and recognised, the, the, the great stuff that you are doing and the tremendous education that you are providing during a very difficult, unprecedented time in all our lives at the moment. So one was just to to say congratulations and, and, and sincerely you've done a tremendous job. And, and, and secondly, what's next? I want to know what's next. Can you I love that a, question. Can you give us a, a, a sneak peek? Or are you just going to just... Well, uh, well, only because you've, you've just brought it up. I mean, can I let you and probably for the first time on the coaching podcast... Let everyone know that after five years, and you know what, uh, how many drafts and how many manuscripts, but the book, What Makes a Great Coach, will be here before Christmas. I don't know exactly what day. It, um, Mitch Hewitt, you feature uh, on the chapter on communication, would you believe? Uh, yeah. Fancy that. And your impact on my life and helping me with my terms and you know how important language is to me and I'm flying to Las Vegas next week to present on coaching female players and honestly of the three hours that I have allotted, at least 50% of that is about communication. And uh, I think I'm, I'll never stop learning about it too. I'll never stop growing and becoming a, a great communicator because George Sheehan once said, that we're all unique experiments of one. I heard that on a running podcast, right? Nice. So yeah. what we've spoken about this whole time, know the student, understand the domains, layer the domains in. And to do that, we're very lucky sometimes as tennis coaches, maybe we've only got four to eight students in front of us. I, I was, I've interviewed on the podcast an NFL coach. I mean, I mean, you've got the offensive team, the defensive team, and then all the special specialty team and, yeah. and yeah. all the rest of it. And what's coming up next for me, I'm even also considering coaching the, the women's AFL team here. They're called the Lady Bulldogs. Obviously, the Western Bulldogs in the grand final against Melbourne. Uh, Look, Luke Beveridge is a coach, um, very humanistic, living in Mentone, and, and I'm not sure if people know the background to Luke. He he worked in the amateurs for four years, and he took he won four premierships in a row. He basically took that amateur team in Mentone, the Mentone Tigers, from C to A, and and that was his kind of coaching apprenticeship. But what I have heard. And going out to his huddles and listening when you were allowed to do that, um, he, he was very, very empowering, uh, which was really impressive. And I know that the, the players have, have spoken about his, his culture of care, that he really cares about them. He really knows them and he knows each one of them individually and acknowledges that they're all different. But, hey, you, you've, got, uh, you've got lots of stuff. You've got this book which I'm dying to read, uh, you, you've got this stuff in Las Vegas. Again, I just want to say on behalf of everyone that, that, that tunes in and listens to say thank you for all the great work that you're doing uh, for us. It's tremendous and uh, I, I think it's um, enriching and 
as you say, we never stop learning, and you're uh, you're you're a key to that. You, you just keep uh, producing some great stuff. So thank you on behalf of all the coaches, educators, parents, students, players, significant others, and everyone else to say thank you and for all your terrific work. I really really appreciate that. I'm be tearing up a little bit. Thank God it's an audio podcast. <laughs> Not a visual <laughs> one, but um, it means so much to me just you saying that. And and as you know, you know, it does take a fair bit of time to edit and, uh, you know, I don't have an editing studio. I don't have a production team. Um, it's it's me and and my co-host Simon Blair will be very interested in, in some of your comments and around Luke. And, of course, we'd love to get Luke on the coaching podcast. So we'll just yeah. put in. We're putting it out in the universe. We're putting out an invitation for him to come on the coaching podcast in the off season, of course, and uh, and watch this space. If I end up taking on the Lady Bulldogs, maybe I'll have to wait till the the weekend final. Uh, which by the time this episode comes out, then then the result will be uh when but will be in the hands of every, all the listeners. Cliff Mallet, thank you, Mitch Hewitt, right back at you. Please continue to do what you do. Write your papers, everyone. Just Google his name. And you'll see so many articles uh, that are really, really worthwhile investing time in the art and science of coaching. It's been an honour and a pleasure spending uh, one hour of my life with you. And uh, take care, everybody. And thank you so much, Mitch. Thanks for your time, Emma, and thank you for having me. The Coaching Podcast was brought to you by Emma Doyle and Simon Blair. Emma Doyle is a global speaker and performance coach helping unleash human potential. Her website is emmadoyle.com.au. And I'm Simon Blair, trainer, assessor, and coach of sales and customer service skills with my own company, Five Degrees. Connect with me on LinkedIn or email me at simon.blair at five degrees, that's F-I-V-E-D-E-G-R-E-E-S dot com dot A-U. Thank you.